0: Well hello again and welcome to Passing the Baton, Series 2, and this is the one for the 25th of April 2009, Spiritual Warfare Part 4, and it's entitled The King and His Kingdom, Warfare and Majesty. God is so utterly, amazingly incredible that you run out of superlatives. How do you describe Majesty so bright you cannot look upon it. How do you describe beauty so outrageous you hardly dare believe it? How do you describe the indescribable? What if he's nothing like any of us have ever imagined but supremely, superlatively greater, more powerful and lovelier than that? That he's altogether kinder gentler, more merciful, patient, joyful, happy, in a word, glorious, radiant, bright. There's a place in God's affection, there's a power that is ours if we will believe it. We're not supposed to be able to contain everything that God wants to give us. We're supposed to overflow, splash everyone in sight with a blessing to walk in favour and give it away. God is glorified when we are full to overflowing with everything he wants to give us. If you have a first heaven experience, you magnify the enemy. You see him bigger than he is. There is a place in the third heaven where you see God as he really is and you are dumbfounded. You are astonished. You are in awe. You are amazed and you live that way. This word is going to be contested by the enemy, but he's only allowed to do that so that God can establish the truth in our hearts. The tougher it is, the more God is going to establish. We are learning how to let our spirit man rise in every situation. We're learning, beloved. We're not there yet, but we are getting there. We're in training for reigning in this life, no matter what the circumstances. If we're only peaceful, if everything is going well, we have a little way to go. The goal is peace, no matter what is assailing us, because we know who we are and whose we are, and we're living in all the goodness and favour that that implies. Heads we win, tails he loses, either way we are winners. You know, don't you, that quitters never win, and winners never quit. We are overcomers, we are on the victory side, and the battle is the Lord's. We are the glorious companion of an incredible king, and we have a future and a destiny that is breathtaking. Beloved, we haven't seen anything yet. I was brought into the kingdom in a Pentecostal church and warfare meant addressing the enemy and reading him his fortune loudly and frequently. I did some of it myself. It was singularly ineffective. Unbeknown to me, we were operating in the first heaven. We were earthbound eagles. What I did discover, however, was that relationally we were abysmal. There was backbiting, gossip, offence and strife within the assembly, which was never addressed. There was no deferring to one another in love and no real cohesion as a community, which was intended to be fighting a common foe. We probably spent more time fighting and disagreeing with each other than we did fighting the enemy. Does this resonate with anyone? As I went on in my Christian walk I discovered that this approach to warfare was wrong but the enemy was very happy for us to continue as we were because it served his purpose. Divide and rule, keep them in ignorance. I bless the day that I found that contrary to my existing belief true warfare is earthed in relationships. Friendship with one another is spiritual warfare being kind to someone when they're being unkind to you is spiritual warfare. Blessing one another, responding in the opposite spirit to that which is coming against us. Loving our spouse is all spiritual warfare. To conform us to the image of Christ is the whole point of spiritual warfare. It's this very warfare that forms Christ in us. There came a point at the baptism of Jesus when the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove and there's this voice saying this is my beloved son I'm really pleased with him you need to listen to him it's like God the Father steps back into the wings and puts Jesus on center stage preferring him you listen to him he says what does Jesus do? He points straight back to the Father and says, But I only do what my Father is doing and saying. He points all the time to the Father. It's his joy and delight to represent the Father. So the Father and the Son are honouring and preferring one another. And then Jesus is found saying to his disciples, Boys, it's better for you if I go away because then he can come. The Holy Spirit can come. What's he saying? Listen, I know you like me, but he is better at this next phase than I am, and it's better for you if I go, because if I go, he can come, and he's absolutely sensational and brilliant at this next phase. So Jesus steps back into the wings and the Holy Spirit comes, and what does he do? All he only ever wants to talk about is Jesus. He only ever wants to represent Jesus and produce the image of Jesus in us. What am I saying? I am saying you see in the very Godhead itself the pattern laid down for the church and how we should be with one another. The whole of the Godhead defers to one another in love. You never lose out if you honour somebody else above yourself. You never lose out if you love your enemy. You never lose out if you bless someone who persecutes you or pray for those who despitefully use you. If you live for other people, God will live for you and you will know his tangible presence is the way into his presence. So how does this fit with spiritual warfare? we learn to use everything that comes against us to conform us to the image of Christ, to conform us to the nature of the Father, to cause us to practise the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to teach us how to abide in Christ and show forth his nature. In this way, every attack of the enemy only makes us stronger and makes him mad. We discover the hidden value of warfare in the body of Christ. Warfare is sent by God to make us Christ-like. So the enemy can be God's secret weapon to form Christ in us. And it really annoys him when we understand and cooperate with God's ways in this. Brilliant! So it isn't complicated. It is everyday life and everyday choices that we make in everyday situations which means every time I choose not to go the way of my fallen nature something dies and I become more like Christ. If I don't make these choices I will stay immature reactive and carnal and never go on to the deeper things of the Spirit. Will I respond or react I get to choose? Of course the downside is the better you become the more of a target you will be. Find out your weak points where he always manages to gain access and close them. Stop the gap. You have to do it. You make the choice and exert your will. No one else can do it for you. He doesn't need to try anything different on us when we continue falling into the same trap. He's so obvious right in your face and we miss it most times simply because it's the button he can always push to get us right out of the spirit and into the flesh we must identify our weaknesses identify these areas stop blaming other people for why we get angry or make ourselves accountable to someone, so they can say, you can't be like that because this is who you are. We can't keep scoring an own goal. That's what accountability is. It's not top-down stuff. It's lateral, sideways, across the body. Don't be ashamed of your weakness. That gives him another entry point. Well, if they knew what you were like, and he's got you. So face your weak areas, beloved, your weak points, and the place he always gains entry, and stop the gap. That is where you need to set a guard. Samson and David both had a weakness in the area of women. Face it, we are weak people. The flesh is weak, it is flimsy, But we are meant to be living our lives in the spirit, not the flesh. Because the flesh will always trip you up. What are your mental weak places where he always gets in in the same way? Someone says something and you go into tears. They're rejecting me. Or maybe offence or anger, whatever your reaction may be. Stop and give yourself a check-up from the neck up. Who's a silly Billy then? Lunch is served and I am on the menu again. Recognise your weak mental processes and determine not to go there. Shut the door. I'm not having that thought. It is remarkably effective. Imagine a door in your mind and close it. We are one body, one soul, because God sees us as his bride no division there strife and division have to become a thing of the past as we unite against a common foe as we come more and more into the realization of christ in us the hope of glory christ incarnate come to life in us personified in us we will begin to get into step with the spirit in a way we have never done before. We will see ourselves as God sees us and we will begin to realise that dunamis power, the dunamis power which is within every one of us, the reality of the risen Lord within. When we get a grip on that the demons will tremble and the church will rise to be the manifold wisdom of God as he intends. Ephesians 3.10 in the King James Version says to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. There are difficult times ahead for us They are there as opportunities for growth, not for us to shrink back. We don't have a spirit of fainting on us, but power. And that power is inside us, dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. We have this explosive power within us, the majesty and supremacy of the spirit of Jesus within When we enter into a new season in God, it's imperative that we learn to upgrade our idea of who He is. If your insignificant idea of who He is is brought into an upgrade He wants to give you in the Spirit, you will find yourself overfaced and shrinking back from what He's opening out and offering you, because your vision of God is too small. We all currently need to have a major upgrade in our view of Him. He's so big you miss him, if you see what I mean. He is so big you can't see the wood for the trees. If you are still living in a childhood version of baby Jesus, it's time for an upgrade. If you still have him meek and mild, it's time for an upgrade. We see this in the life of Moses. God took Moses from Deliverer, getting his people out, to taking them in. In Exodus 33, Moses' job description changed. He now has to be consumed with inheritance, getting the people into the promised land, not deliverance, which was getting them out. So to fulfill this next stage he had to see God bigger. And God manoeuvres him to ask for something. Moses must ask for what God next wants to give him. Exodus 33.12 and God is excited. I'm reading Exodus 33.12 to verse 23 in the New American Standard Bible. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favour in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I might find favour in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Verse 17 The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favour in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. This is what God has been waiting for. Verse 19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion, on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." God's excited. He wants to reveal more of himself to his servant because the task which lies ahead before Moses will need Moses to see God bigger than he does right now. Moses needs to know at this point that God is going to be sufficient for everything he might meet in their journey into the promised land. So God says to him This Mo is who I'm going to be who is going to go with you. Nevertheless, I'll be there. Moses gets the upgrade he needs to fulfil the next part of God's plan. God isn't afraid of a fight. In fact, he usually orchestrates them. He is a warrior king, lord of Sabaoth, a fighter. He loves a good fight because he always wins. No contest, he's a conqueror and he makes no excuses. He's a lion. Here's an extract from The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, which is part of the Narnia series. A girl named Jill is lost and scared in a forest and she's looking for some guarantees. She cries and cries and develops a terrible thirst. As she looks for water, she happens upon a stream and eagerly runs towards it. But then she notices a lion is lying beside it. She stops in her tracks. The lion, knowing she is thirsty, invites her to come and drink. Sound familiar? And the dialogue then goes something like this, Jill says. May I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realised she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not to um, do anything to me if I do come?' said Jill. "'I make no promise,' said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it she'd come a step nearer. "'Do you eat, little girls?' she said. "'I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, "'kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the Lion. "'It didn't say this as if it were boasting, "'nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. "'It just said it.' "'I daren't come and drink,' said Jill. "'Then you will die of thirst,' said the Lion. "'Oh, dear,' said Jill, coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. C.S. Lewis puts these words into the mouth of Aslan, the Christ figure, as he talks to a scared little girl. I make no promise. Promise concerning what? concerning that Jill will not suffer, that she will not have difficulties. He will not promise her a better life, an easy road. But he does invite her to drink the water she needs. There is no other stream. We cannot escape the coming night. We are probably the generation upon whom the end of all things will come. Jesus does not mean us to have an escape mentality. He did not give us a spirit of fainting, timidity or fear, but of love, power and a sound mind. We need an upgrade. We need to know him and his ways the children of Israel knew his works Moses knew his ways knowing him as your strength who he is for you he doesn't just give you strength he himself is your strength everything he is is yours that is your inheritance beloved he is your peace he is your joy he is your inheritance. This is our God, his supreme majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, who sits, Isaiah tells us, enthroned above the circle of the earth. Isaiah forty, twenty-one, and 22 from the New American Standard Bible. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. For me, this has always been one of the most majestic passages in the Bible. Have you not heard? Where have you been? Do you need an upgrade right now? We are in a time where everything we have understood about church is changing. There is a profound shaking going on and every one of us will feel it in some way or at some time or other we have entered the era of the Kingdom, the establishment of God's Kingdom here on earth. When you begin to see things in Kingdom terms, you have a broader, wider perspective, and the issues which might previously have caused friction become insignificant in the presence of the King where his love pervades and invades everything. A church without an emphasis on the kingdom will produce a man-centred spirituality based more on fallen humanity than on the person of God in our midst. In it you will find all those things I've just described, division and strife, no cohesion and no common goal a loose-knit gathering of people who actually do not like each other very much, but meet each Sunday for something they call worship. Without an acknowledgement and practice of the Kingdom, the Church will not regain and maintain her place in the world. In real warfare breakthrough is one thing, occupation is another. It is one thing to get free and a completely different thing to stay free. There are always two battles to be won and the second is most important. Keeping that which God has given into our hands. Only the Kingdom can deliver us to that place of majesty, glory and presence. It is the revelation of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like that will develop our relationship with God to a high level where we are tuned in to what the Father is saying and doing and we are walking with Jesus in bridal partnership. Suddenly we have a goal in sight. You cannot minister to the earth from the earth. You can only minister to the earth from heaven. You cannot live your life without a goal. It will be purposeless and you will drift. Each one of us needs to know from God what is my purpose, what am I here for, and when you find this out, ask for your personal development plan to fulfil your destiny. God is purposeful and intentional with us. Nothing is left to chance, but we have to approach him, find out what that destiny is, and begin to walk towards it. Each one of us has a place in God that no one else can fill. You are important. You are significant. You are part of the army, part of the family, part of the bride of Christ. You are God's field. You are God's workmanship, Paul tells us in Ephesians. In all this, alignment is everything. You cannot walk in Kingdom values if you are not coming into alignment with the King in your everyday life. He must increase, we must decrease, for the Kingdom to be established. Flesh must give way to Spirit. So the title of this month's Spiritual Warfare Teaching is Warfare and Majesty and the subtitle is Abandonment to Jesus. There's no warfare without majesty, the majestic presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The majesty and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ is the focus of all spiritual warfare, not the enemy. In the past, as I've already observed in some sections of the church, we have majored on attacking the forces of darkness which resulted in needless casualties of war because we did not understand the rules of engagement, and in our ignorance we chose the ground and went up presumptuously, as did the seven sons of Sceva. You'll find about them in Acts 19.13-17 and I'm reading now from the New International Version. Verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. There is nothing done in the spirit That is without the name being glorified his is the majesty the power and the glory forever amen true spiritual warfare is not about binding and loosing the enemy but about knowing the majesty and supremacy of almighty god and true spiritual power is directly related to our level of righteousness. While there is sin, sinful behaviour and self-indulgence in the church, we will remain stagnant and spiritually impotent, earthbound eagles. We need to understand spiritual warfare from God's perspective. The purpose of the enemy in God's economy is to drive us into God. Any situation is there to drive us deeper into him. When we change our focus from the enemy, circumstances, situations or people, God will open up his majesty, his supremacy and his sovereignty to us. So we need to understand warfare from his perspective. This is how we learn about the warrior king. This is how he teaches us about his majesty. This is how we have a third heaven experience, looking down from where God placed us, in heavenly places, in Christ. There is no warfare without the majesty of God. God is unceasingly magnificent, and we are the glorious, eternal companion of this incredible King. While we are here on earth, we are his warrior bride. We are to share his throne for eternity. We are joint heirs. A joint heir cannot work alone. They can only act in partnership with another. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. We should be constantly declaring I am the highly favoured one of God. I am the glorious companion of a magnificent and incredible King. There needs to be a mindset change about who we are, where we are and who he is as he reveals himself to us as the warrior king. We need to develop a determination to allow him to be the Lord of the whole of our lives, not just a part. If we have settled for just partial involvement, now is the time to rectify that and step forward fully into God's eternal purposes. For too long we've lived as though we are the tail and not the head. God did not make us the tail, he made us the head in Christ. Everything we have, everything we are, is in Him. In Him is our righteousness, in Him is our victory. In Him is our peace, in Him is our rest, in Him is our joy. He is our peace, He is our rest, He is our joy, He is our strength we are learning to live our lives in the unbounded confidence of who God is and who he wants to be for us in our current situation. Outside of him there is nothing. He is life's summum bonum. He is our all-sufficiency. In these days God is holding out to us the opportunity to live a life less ordinary, to become part of something so glorious, so unimaginable, so amazing, as he presents himself to us and says, Will you have me in my fullness, in your life as your beloved? Will you live your life here on earth as citizens of another kingdom? Will you be ambassadors for me in a country which is not your home? You cannot minister to the earth from the earth. You can only minister to the earth from heaven. Everything in your life is designed to drive you into God. In spiritual warfare you do not go marching out against what is coming against you. You go into God. He is a refuge for us. He then does something on the inside. You don't come out of the same door you went in. You go into your refuge and come out of your fortress. Read Psalm 91. You get into the face of God, into the presence of God, and He becomes to you what He wants to be. When you come out, You are a different person. First of all, you have to learn to come into the presence of God and learn how to be with Him. It's a discipline of life in the Spirit. We are learning how to be with God and learning how to let God be to us what He wants to be. He wants to be your security. He wants to establish your identity and he wants to totally convince you that you belong to him and no other. You are his peculiar possession. He is jealous over you. You belong to him and he takes it as a personal affront when the enemy comes against you. But he allows this so that he can establish you in who he is and who you are. He is never not in complete control. His sovereignty over all things, seen and unseen, is absolute, total, complete, supreme. And he does allow in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. He will use every crisis and situation in your life to establish something in you. He will allow the enemy to contest the ground so that he can establish the truth in you. He always has a purpose. He always knows what he's doing. And there is no need to panic. But there's no condemnation if you do. Nothing can work against you. Anything that comes against us is designed to establish security, identity and belonging. So you need to learn how to respond to God as your refuge. You need to learn to run to Him. You need to learn to hide in Him. When you stay in Him, nothing can touch you. It's out there, but it can't touch you. The thing we have to learn to control and to choke down is our ability to panic. There is no place for fear in love. But we are learning this, responding to God as our refuge, our security, our identity, and our place of belonging. Never forget, beloved, we are a work in progress. We're in training, we're constantly in a learning situation, and will be until Jesus comes. Don't be hard on yourself, but cooperate with the Holy Spirit. An absolute essential in warfare is that we come to the place where nothing disturbs our peace. And for that we must come into the presence of God until peace comes. Do not take on the enemy if you have no peace. He'll take you down and you'll get into presumption like the sons of Sceva. Wait in the presence until God gives you his strategy for the fight. You may find all you have to do is wait there. Begin to practice peace in the ordinary course of your life. You'll have loads of opportunities. Driving the car is a good one and grace growers abound. I'm working on driving the car and having peace at the same time. Practice focusing on Jesus in your mind and in your heart. Practice turning and yielding in your heart to the Lord. Thanking God for peace, not trying to feel it. It's a discipline, like driving a car. You learn. It doesn't come by impartation or laying on of hands. Paul says, doesn't he, I have learned in all things to be content. Philippians 4.12 that is, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Settle down to the fact that you're in God's school and He is the teacher. Be in it for the long haul not the short sprint. Practice a life of thanksgiving. You can't reach out and grab peace. As you live a life of thanksgiving it comes to you. It comes to you through worship and it comes to you through thanksgiving. That's why God says in everything, give thanks. There's something in it for you. It comes as we set our minds and wills to rejoice in all circumstances. It's a will choice. The circumstances have nothing to do with it. It's a discipline and it needs to be developed. The result of warfare is nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. What we are learning is how to position ourselves before God, how to stand before Him, how to focus on Him. Pray as He directs, do what He tells us to do. And as we do this, He gives us a shield of faith so we can stand. We stand in God and we neutralize the darts of the enemy. His arrows are always directed at your mind. You have to take those thoughts captive to Christ. Be active in faith. Be watchful. Be prepared to snuff out those darts. And when you see a friend being deceived and brought down, snuff out a few of their darts as well. We are moving towards being spiritual warriors, moving as a body, supporting and encouraging one another warriors always take ground, not only for themselves, but others. We're in this together. Someone asked God recently whether the enemy could read what was going on in our minds and our thoughts, and this was the answer that the Holy Spirit gave. Remember the question, can the enemy read our thoughts? The reply speaks of the absolute sovereignty of God. It was this. Can the enemy read our thoughts? Only as much as God allows or reveals. Secret thoughts from God to a believer stay secret even if written down by the believer, unless it is in the Lord's purpose for the enemy to know. If God gives you permission to speak these thoughts out out loud, he will decide who hears. Secret thoughts to God from the believer may be hidden from the enemy by God if that is what God wants. It's God's decision what the enemy is allowed to know, hear or read. God is well able to keep whatever he wishes, either hidden or revealed as he pleases you're not likely to hear him say, oops, I didn't mean for that to get out, or I made a mistake telling that person. God doesn't make mistakes. Much like a loving parent would not allow unsupervised access to a young child if that access would put a child in danger, the Lord will only allow as much access as is safe to an immature person in Christ. But sometimes children will run off and into danger. God will usually only reveal secret thoughts that are to be kept secret to those he can trust. Mature sons. Mature sons have the ability to say no to access and not speak thoughts out loud if instructed not to. Thoughts that are unworthy, or of the enemy in the first place, or directed at the enemy, will be revealed or allowed to be known, if it is God's purpose. A person can, by a deed or action, give the enemy right of access, for instance, unconfessed sin, etc. If a person gives a foothold or ground to the enemy, then they are giving him right of access. If they keep themselves close to the Lord, with a short account, access is denied. A thought planted by the enemy which leads to a train of thoughts by the person will be followed by the enemy. The enemy can engage a person's thoughts all day long if the person doesn't turn from them and focus on God. Focusing on God requires an act of the will by the person this is part of the battle for the mind. That's a sobering message. We can clearly give a foothold, as the scripture tells us, to the enemy by our thoughts if they are critical, judgmental, angry or unworthy in any way. Our thoughts and attitudes are so important in spiritual warfare. As we've already seen, our first battleground is earthly. It is to gain our own inner territory. The war of the flesh versus the spirit. God will not lead us out into any kind of offensive warfare against the enemy until we have fully won the internal battle. Submission to God and alignment with Him are key. Peace and rest are weapons. Repentance is a weapon. Change your mind. Have another thought. If we look at the book of Daniel, we see another essential for warfare. Daniel 9, 4 and 5. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Daniel humbles himself and repents as though he himself had committed the sins. Identificational Repentance So true spiritual warfare starts with us reclaiming our ground, our own inner territory. It starts with us Living as the word directs, loving as the word directs, and forgiving as the word directs. It starts with us developing values around our lives that are fixed and immovable. Our love for each other becomes non-negotiable. I'm going to love you whether you like it or not. It starts with us deciding and choosing not to take offence. Big one. I will die to be in touchy, sensitive and easily offended. I will stop feeling rejected when people don't seem to notice me. I will seek the greater good of all and not focus on myself. These are values which relate to that inner territory which needs to be reclaimed and held because they will be tested. Always two battles, one to get the ground the second to hold it. We establish the bridgehead. A bridgehead is a forward position seized by advancing troops in enemy territory which serves as a basis for further advances. We want at least one of those. And it's our choices that hold and advance the kingdom in our lives. In the realm of spiritual warfare there are three areas the training ground, the proving ground, and the battleground. Maybe you are already identifying which ground you're on right now. It'll likely be the training ground for most of us. The proving ground is when God says, I think they're ready, don't you? And the round table conference in heaven over our lives releases us into something bigger, and things gear up, and you suddenly find yourself on the proving ground. At this point everything you thought you knew and were secure in gets shaken because everything God does he will establish in you through that proving ground. It's rather like the sea trials that boat builders put the vessels through. It has to be tested. Though we don't like it, tests are very necessary. When you've proved out then you'll find yourself on the battleground at some stage. For most of us that is something yet in the future. God will not take us where he cannot keep us. So the enemy is there to grow us spiritually. People are there and difficult circumstances are there to form Christ in us. Everything is for our profit. Nothing comes to us by chance god is purposeful in his dealings with us and the situations he allows in our lives one thing is needful in all of this an intense love and devotion to the person of the lord jesus christ and an equally intense hatred for the devil and all his works in our last session i have called you friends we concentrated on what the flesh versus the spirit looked like. In this month's teaching, we will see how important it is that we make the choices that keep us going on in the spirit rather than the flesh. That we align ourselves with God and who He says we are, not with the devil and who He says we are. <laughs> While I was preparing this, um, Graham Cook's March Newsletter came through and part of it said this. We each have a choice. We will magnify the Lord or we will magnify the situation that is currently bothering us. Magnifying God is the antidote to a negative mindset. It turns a setback into a comeback. To live in the spirit and to reveal our inner being Our whole person must be in agreement. Faith is demonstrated by our entire person, soul, spirit and body. With mental agreement and emotional submission, the act of our will agrees with the focus of the spirit and come into alignment with who God is and what he wants to do. The instant this happens, breakthrough starts. Your soul, by that I mean your mind, your emotions and your will, is the enemy's camping ground if you give it to him. It's the only place to which he has access and it's you who gives him that access by your thought processes, your attitudes and your choices. We choose whether we allow him to pitch his tent in our garden, as we have just seen. I cannot emphasise strongly enough how important your choices are. If you go through your life's experiences never gaining knowledge or understanding of what they're meant to accomplish, you will continue to go round the same situations time and time again because you aren't getting it. Experience is meant to lead on to knowledge, an aha moment. We either have situational, that is progressive, or retrospective revelation. We cannot live without one or the other. We must begin to understand what's happening in our lives and why either during the event or at least shortly after, so that we have understanding, either progressively while it's happening or retrospectively when we sit down and say to the Lord, what was that? All about. We must begin to inquire of the Lord, what does this mean? What should I do? How do I position myself? And get into step, into agreement, into alignment with the Holy Spirit as he seeks to form Christ in us through our everyday lives and circumstances. When we understand cooperation with him becomes a joy as we recognise we're being changed from one degree of glory to another as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. I passionately believe that Jesus is looking at the church right now. He's looking in her face and he's saying, You have heard it said, but now I say to you. And it heralds a whole new way of doing church. If we don't hear this, we're not going to build on what God wants to build this day. Neither are we going to be in a position to be ready for what is coming. Prophets everywhere are speaking of difficult times ahead, all in the plan and purposes of God, where everything will look like chaos and perplexity. But those who know their God will be strong and do exploits, knowing God as He really, really is for you is the prerequisite in this hour. It will be your strength and stay in the things in the days to come. Knowing how to position yourself, how to pray, how to war a good warfare will be absolutely essential. You know, we've already spoken of the divine acceleration which is to get us into step with God. Of John Paul Jackson's word of the woes of 2012. Of Chris Larkin's word regarding the great delusion that is to come upon the masses. All these speak of the culmination of the church age. They speak of time running out, of the advent of the Antichrist upon the world stage and the soon catching away of the bride. And how glorious she will be when that day comes. Those of you who were here at the very first of the teachings on spiritual warfare will probably be familiar with what I'm about to say now but it is important that we recap at this stage. I want to repeat what non-alignment and alignment look like in order that you can see precisely where you are. First of all a definition. Alignment is defined as being allied to, united with and associated with something. In this case the Holy Spirit and His desires for your life. It means asking the Lord where we are out of alignment and taking immediate steps to bring ourselves into alignment. It is an ongoing process. As we grow in the Lord, more and more areas of our lives should be brought under the benevolent control of the Holy Spirit and into subjection to the Lordship of Christ and into alignment with him as we walk yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Whatever we are aligned with will govern our thoughts, actions and behaviour. So now we know what it is let's look at some signs of non-alignment first. On a physical level you will feel tense There will be stress in and around your life rather than the rest and peace of God. Loss of appetite or the reverse, overeating to comfort yourself. Loss of sleep, tension, stress, headaches, even flu-like symptoms. You may be tired, listless, nervous or just wanting to hide. Wanting to get away from everything, doing something physical rather than spiritual. Can't be bothered to meet with God or pray, so you clean the house or the car or you go to the gym, watch television at 10 o'clock in the morning, anything to divert your attention away from God and what he may be saying to you. Emotionally you will feel upset. Fear, worry and doubt will come in. Focus will disappear. Anxiety will be uppermost. Emotionally, when you are non aligned, you can be reactive against people and situations. You see the worst, you speak without thinking, you're anxious, full of worry, fear, anger, rejection. You are irritable, you take everything as an offense, you feel rejected at the slightest thing. You are sad, moody, you have a roller coaster of emotions. Sometimes you're just cynical, mistrustful. Mentally you question everything and become super analytical. You speculate, you pick holes in things, or you replay events negatively time and time again and guess what, every time you replay it, it gets more negative and the enemy adds more. Nurse it, curse it, rehearse it and sure enough it grows. You're suspicious about people and their motives and so on. You take snapshots which aren't true and come to conclusions that only reinforce your opinion. You are unable to be objective. Everything is subjective and based on your feelings. Mentally, you'll feel resistance as if you're fighting something or someone. You will be short-tempered and quickly irritated. When you are non-aligned, barriers are raised against God, against people. Resistance forms and we man the barricades to repel the truth. We just won't receive it. We are defensive and selectively deaf. We resist the Holy Spirit and the truth he wants to bring. And when people try to bring it, we think they have a wrong motive or a hidden agenda. When you are non-aligned, your flesh has to have the upper hand. Poor alignment brings us into negativity, unbelief, woundedness, poor relationships and condemnation. There is no recognisable pattern to your thoughts because the enemy is not that daft. He just takes you into areas of the flesh and right away from the spirit. Do you remember last session I said to check out the areas where he always got you? You know what they are. It's up to you to close the gap and not buy the lie. Make the choices, see the changes. Spiritually, non-alignment makes you feel you're under attack and you'll almost always mistake this for spiritual warfare. So if you don't practice agreement between yourself and the Holy Spirit, you will be soulish, led mostly by your feelings and your emotions, and heavily influenced by rational thinking. Those uncomfortable things then are some symptoms of non-alignment.